Tonight, I would like to introduce you to a theological term, a theological term that is certainly biblical, but very possibly one that you've never heard of before, never heard of this word before, and it's called recapitulation. Recapitulation. You're probably trying to figure out how to spell that right now. Recapitulation. And if you've heard me in BTI, I may have used this term already, so some of you kind of have the sneak peek preview. And then if you're in the youth ministry, you got to hear a little bit of a lesson on this, so you really know. So you should be able to answer any questions I were to give you on this. Recapitulation, it's a big word, but it has a very simple meaning. It's not hard to understand. Recapitulation, biblically speaking, means this. Biblical events repeat themselves. Biblical events repeat themselves. It's not a word that actually occurs in the Bible, just like Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible, but it is a biblical concept, like we just sung in the song, from beginning to end. There is depth and complexity to this topic that has perhaps prevented some in our broader evangelical circles from addressing this, but knowing how well taught you already are and how hungry you are for the amazing truths of Scripture, I think this is going to be a very good fit for us tonight. Plus the fact that I have brought this up a couple times in BTI, like I was saying, so many of you are a little familiar with this, and moreover, Pastor Steve has just primed the pump for this topic in his Sunday morning series in Matthew. And I think you'll see what I mean in a little bit. Honestly, I can't, I can hardly find a more amazing, kind of mind-blowing topic to discuss with you besides this topic of recapitulation tonight. It's really amazing. It blew my mind as I was learning about it years ago in seminary. And this sermon may feel a little bit different than what you're used to, but the topic is also very quite different. So I feel justified in my approach tonight, so bear with me, okay? And I've already defined for you what recapitulation is. Biblical events repeat themselves. And now for the rest of the time today, I just want to give you literally just three primary examples of recapitulation. That's all we have time for tonight. Three primary examples of recapitulation. And those three are the following. The first one, I've called it the 40s. The 40s. 4-0, right? The 40s. The second, I've called the second ruler. The second ruler. And then the third one, I've called the boat and the storm. The boat and the storm. And we will spend the majority of our time on the first one, the 40s. So if we're running behind and we have like 10 minutes left in the sermon, you're like, oh my goodness, he hasn't even gotten to point number two yet. It's okay. I planned that in advance. Don't need to panic. Although I do get long-winded, so maybe you should panic. And our first one is going to act as kind of like the case study for the other ones. It's really going to introduce you to the concept of recapitulation, and it will take some time to develop. But once you get the first one, the other two should flow very quickly and naturally. You'll understand it. And so because there's so much to cover in our limited time tonight, let's go ahead and dive right in. Let's start with the 40s. And I'm not referring to this significant decade in American history, the 40s, okay? I'm talking about the number 40 that actually occurs in Scripture at several key points. Let's start with Jesus and his 40. Jesus and his 40. In Matthew chapter 4, go ahead and turn your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. And we did a, a fly-through Matthew with Pastor Steve several weeks ago, so you should be quite familiar with some of this, these texts already here that surround Matthew 4 and Matthew 4 itself. In Matthew 4, we learn that Jesus was driven into the wilderness for 40 days and... 40 nights. And immediately, we should ask ourselves, why? Oh, why? Why 40 days and 40 nights? Is there significance to this? Ah, But perhaps you might be thinking, yeah, but what if it's just random? I mean, are we making too much just out of a number 40? Okay, it was 40 days and 40 nights. 
Certainly, we deal with random numbers every day, and not everything has supernatural significance to it. You might see the number 666 on the license plate in front of you, but that doesn't mean Satan is driving the vehicle. Your health insurance account number might have seven sevens in it, but that doesn't mean you're immune to COVID or any other disease for that matter. We must realize that, though, that though there, there are random numbers that occur every day in our lives, when a biblical writer informs us about a number, we must pay close attention to it because nothing in Scripture is incidental. Nothing especially with numbers, because they would spell them out. So it would take a little while and a lot of space to spell them out. Numbers are important. There's a reason why they give them to us. Everything written in Scripture has a direct connection to a theological point that the author is making. Nothing is simply there to entertain you with trivia. I just thought you'd want to know this, just randomly. All of it matters. All of it's connected. So when you see numbers in the Bible, you should ask why. Why is the author telling us these numbers? But before we explain the significance of something like 40 and what it has to do in Scripture, I want to set up some guidelines for you before we kind of dive into this uh, for how you should go, go about this or really how you shouldn't go about this and warn you about uh, what you shouldn't do. Be careful that this doesn't take you on a wild goose chase where you can prove anything and everything with a number like 40, which is what some people do. It can't simply be a convenient way for you to prove your personalized interpretation of Scripture. That's where dangerous ideologies like numerology or seeing signs around every corner in your life, those go completely awry when you go that direction. You have no boundaries when you do that. Because your interpretation always caters to yourself and your immediate perception of things. When the reader seeks his personalized message in Scripture, his self-ambition always clouds God's intended meaning. Can I say that again? That's really important. It's really easy for our self-ambition to cloud God's intended meaning. But a proper interpretation behind something like Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness always must consider the text above the reader, and it must make legitimate, author-intended textual connections. Author-intended. In other words, if Matthew sat down with us today, he would agree that he intended us to make those textual connections from his gospel to some Old Testament text. He actually intended that. He would agree with that. You and your modern situation are always secondary to the meaning of the text. You and your situation must submit to the meaning of the text, no matter how disconnected that meaning may be from your situation. Dr. Abner Chow, the president of the Master's University and Seminary, he kind of puts it this way. He says, we often try to make the Bible relevant to us, but rather we must learn how to become relevant to the Bible. It's really easy to try to make the Bible relevant to self, but what we must learn is how to make ourselves relevant to the Bible. The goal is not to find a meaning that sounds reasonable to you. The goal is to find the author's meaning, especially as it fits within all other related passages of Scripture in the tapestry of progressive divine revelation. So that's just a caution as we get going, okay? But let's go ahead and talk about then Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Many of you will observe right away that the number 40 occurs at some important points in Scripture. You might remember that. And what we find is that 40 days and 40 nights are not unique to Jesus. But rather, as mentioned, and you'll see this in Exodus chapter 24, verse 18. Okay, that's one of them. And then the other one is in Exodus 34, verse 28. Chapter 24, verse 18. Chapter 34, verse 28. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. On two separate occasions, he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. In both of these situations, he received the law written on two tablets. 
Remember, he broke the first two tablets after they committed the sin with the golden calf. But also we know that according to Stephen's testimony about Moses, this is interesting, Stephen's testimony about Moses in Acts chapter 7, you specifically find it in verse 30, he shepherded sheep in the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Interesting. 40 years is the time that Moses spent in the wilderness shepherding sheep. These, oh, excuse me, and then one other thing before I move on. Many of us will remember that Israel, like Moses, was also in the wilderness for 40 years, yeah? These historical moments that center around 40 are connected. They are intended to be connected. It's more than just a shot in the dark connection where all of them just kind of mention the number 40. No, that's random. That's kind of cool. Moses' 40 days and 40 nights twice on Mount Sinai are marked by not eating anything and not drinking anything. And of course, that's miraculous. He should have died without water after six days or so. But that should sound familiar. He's, in the, he's on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, not eating anything, not drinking anything. That sounds a lot like Jesus in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights, without food and sustenance. Even so, all four examples that I've listed here, Jesus, Israel, Moses on Sinai, and in Midian for 40 years, they're all set in the wilderness, aren't they? And that's significant because the wilderness in each of these examples acts as a time of testing. Whenever you see that in Scripture, when people are going through the wilderness, that is a time of testing for them. And it's no wonder then that Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested or tempted by the devil. So whether it was Jesus or Moses or Israel, all were tested. God tested them in the wilderness. And the connection makes sense because often in Scripture, a leader must walk through what his people will walk through. A leader must walk through what his people will walk through. He must experience what his people will experience or did experience. That's how you know that the person is qualified to lead those people in the Old Testament. That's how you know, because he walked through what they will go through or what they did go through. Moses had to walk where Israel would walk. 40 years in Midian for Moses. 40 years in the wilderness for Israel. By doing so, Moses proves he is fit to lead them. He is fit to lead them. That is strategic in God's plan. It was not a coincidence. So it's no wonder then that Jesus also had to walk this road too. And so then he proves that he is the ultimate one who is fit to lead his people, to lead us. And in Jesus' life, the connections go even deeper. And so let's look at that. Uh, before Matthew expounds on Jesus' wilderness wanderings, he already went out of his way to connect Jesus with both Israel and Moses. And this is the key where Pastor Steve has been doing this over the last several weeks with Matthew. And so you're going to see some of this if you've been paying attention closely. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2. Turn over to Matthew chapter 2. Before we dive into chapter 4, we're going to peek over here uh, more toward the beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. And in verses 13 through 15, when you survey those verses there, you can see that this is where Jesus uh, has to go down to Egypt. He has to go down to Egypt as a baby boy. Why is that important? Why does he have to go down to Egypt? This is critical. It's because Jesus had to journey where Israel journeyed. He had to journey where Israel journeyed. Even Matthew's quote of Hosea 11.1, hotly contested. Pastor Steve talked about this. Uh, How is Matthew using this verse? It seems out of context. At the end of uh, 
this section here in verse 15, Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, he quotes Hosea 11.1. 1. And the question is, well, is Matthew inserting Jesus into Hosea where he wasn't originally intended to be there? Should we also then insert Jesus into Old Testament passages where we would want him to appear like Matthew did? Perhaps that may sound a little silly to you because you're well taught and perhaps it should sound a little silly to you. But remember, that's how most people in evangelical circles today think about Bible interpretation. And that's how they're taught to think about Bible interpretation, especially of the Old Testament. Find Jesus in every verse in the Old Testament. No, that's not how the New Testament writers interpreted their Old Testament, actually. That's not even how the Old Testament prophets interpreted other Old Testament prophets that came before them. Matthew is not inserting Jesus' story into Hosea's text. Can I say that again? Matthew is not inserting Jesus' story into Hosea's text. Rather, Matthew is inserting Hosea's text into Jesus' story. Jesus is not a reinterpretation of Israel in Hosea. Rather, Jesus' story further develops the theology of Israel in Hosea. Okay, Jesus' story further develops the theology of Israel in Hosea. By connecting the dots between Israel's life and Jesus' life, Matthew proves to his Jewish audience and to us that Jesus is clearly standing in for Israel and fulfilling their role in the fullest sense. Due to famine uh, in the infancy of the nation, Israel had to leave the land of promise in Jacob's lifetime. You remember that story. They had to leave the land of Canaan and dwell in Egypt for a long time and then eventually come out of Egypt. So in the same way, in his infancy, Jesus had to leave the land of Israel and dwell in Egypt and come out of Egypt to show that he is truly representing them. He's walking in their footsteps. Shouldn't it be surprising then that we see in this very passage here, Matthew 2, verse 16, that Herod tries to kill all the baby boys in his hot pursuit of Jesus? Shouldn't it be surprising to us? That should actually sound familiar to you if you know your Old Testament. Because Pharaoh tried the same thing when Moses was an infant. Jesus' life events are then telling us that he is also connected to Moses. And we see here examples in Matthew 2 of recapitulation. History is repeating itself. Israel in Egypt, then Jesus in Egypt. Pharaoh and the baby boys, Herod and the baby boys recapitulation. God orchestrating history to repeat itself to teach us something. And what is that something? Why is there these things repeating themselves? Why are they connected? Well, let's continue and I think you'll see. So when you move a little bit further, before we get, again, we're not right at Matthew 4 yet, but when you get to Matthew chapter 3 and in verse 13, you might have to turn a page over or so, This is right before Jesus enters the wilderness in chapter 4. Jesus is baptized in water. Jesus entering the waters of baptism is important before, interesting the chronology here, he goes into the waters of baptism before he goes into the wilderness. Because just as Israel left Egypt, And then right after they left Egypt, they crossed on dry land through the Red Sea to enter into the wilderness, yes? So also Jesus left Egypt in Matthew 2 so as to pass through waters in Matthew 3 so as to enter into the wilderness in Matthew 4. You hear the connection? These aren't accidental. Matthew's ordered it chronologically, perfectly, to line up the life of Israel and the life of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is the fact that Jesus actually went 
into the water while Israel was spared from touching the water. And I think that's significant because it shows that Israel should have died in the Red Sea. They should have drowned, yes? Pharaoh's army would have chased them into the Red Sea and their fate would have been drowning, trying to swim across. That's what their fate should have been. They should have had to pass into the water. Jesus' baptism then communicates this. I'm going into the water and drowning where you should have drowned. I'm doing what you couldn't do. I'm not just representing you by looking like you. I'm also going to go where you couldn't have gone. I am your sacrifice that you couldn't make. Even the fact that the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism to send him into the wilderness mirrors what happened when the Spirit came into Israel and led them through the wilderness. The Spirit actually came upon Israel after they crossed the Red Sea, and then the Spirit comes upon Jesus. Is that accidental in our text in chapter 4, verse 1? The Spirit is the one, it says, who led Jesus into the wilderness. No, it's not accidental. It's tying those things together. And then there's another connection. After Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, so we're skipping ahead of chapter 4 a little bit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This one may not be so obvious at first. He gets up on a mountain, and he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Should make sense. He's on a mountain, right? That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus saturates the first part of his sermon, explaining the true intent behind the law. You've heard that it was said, right? In the law. But I say to you. Or not one jot or tittle shall pass away from the law. Or unless your righteousness should exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you certainly shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You hear law, righteous standard, Torah. By talking so much about the law here at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus is living out As shocking as it may sound, he is living out the next stage of Israel's history when they came to Mount Sinai and received the law from Yahweh God. And Jesus is saying by doing this, just as Yahweh gave Israel the law, so I am giving you the law and its fullest true meaning. And in other words, If Yahweh's the one that gave them the law from Mount Sinai, and I'm giving you the law and its true intent on this mountain here, right, the Sermon on the Mount, then I am Yahweh who delivers the law to you. That's what it's saying. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 for a moment. Now seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain. Again, nothing is coincidental in Scripture. He's on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And very important words here. Easy to overlook because we don't always fully understand this right away. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, and then so it begins. In the synagogues in those days, Scribes would sit down and they would open up a scroll in front of them and then begin to read it. Notice Jesus does what? He sits down. Like a scribe would do. But also notice Jesus didn't open a scroll, but he did open something. He opened his mouth. And by doing so, his posture communicates so much. He's saying, my teaching doesn't just come from a scroll. I don't have to depend upon only what is written. I have my own authority to deliver the law and explain it my way because I am the authority. I am Yahweh. That is what those words are intended to help us understand. There's clear terminology to help us understand he is living out 
Mount Sinai, living out the authority of God, giving the law to Israel. And that's why everyone is shocked at the end of his sermon because they totally got it. From the very moment that he began to speak, they understood what he was doing. Look at chapter 7 at the very end in verse 28. Chapter 7, verse 28. And it happened when Jesus finished these words. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he's such an eloquent preacher. No, that's not what it says. He wasn't just because he was an eloquent preacher and he's so good with his words. No, it says, for he was teaching them as one who has authority. And not like their what? Their scribes. Because what do their scribes do? They open up the scroll. And they read from the scroll. What is Jesus doing? You heard that it was said in the scroll, this, I say to you this. This authority comes from me. And they're like, why do you have the authority to do that? By the way, the scribes aren't doing anything wrong. The scribes are doing everything right. They should be reading from the scroll. That's not the point of that statement. The point is, Jesus is teaching them as one who has authority to speak from his own initiative to give you the interpretation as he sees it because he's the one that actually originally gave it. The point is that he had the authority to deliver the law without appealing to any text, without appealing to any tradition, without appealing to a previous scribe. He was not like their scribes that would do all of those things. And so by sitting on the mountain, he's appealing to his own authority to interpret the law And Jesus, by doing that, mirrors Yahweh delivering the law to Israel on Sinai. That is recapitulation. He is living out Sinai again. So, it should be clear, hopefully it is, from Jesus' departure to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt, to his baptism in water, to his mountain sermon about the law, And then, of course, now Jesus' wilderness wanderings tucked in the middle of those events. This is all intentionally tied together, even such that the wilderness wanderings connect us back to Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings themselves. And Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings are tied back to their leader, Moses, who was also exiled from Egypt in Midian for 40 years himself, and who received the law on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. They're all connected. That's recapitulation. History repeats itself in each of these situations to point back to the previous event. So we've looked at the evidence for connecting Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights to Moses and to Israel, And we could talk in more detail about how in each of these three tests that Jesus is given in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus responds to Satan uncoincidentally with words from Deuteronomy in every single response that cannot be a coincidence because Deuteronomy is the book all about what Israel should have said and what they should have done in the wilderness, but they didn't do. Remember the context of Deuteronomy? It's given to Israel after they went through 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the first generation's already long dead and gone. And now this message is being delivered in Deuteronomy to the second generation of Israelites. And they are receiving that. And there's a repeating of the law. This is what you should have said. This is what you should have lived. This is what your fathers should have done. And they didn't do that. Now Jesus is actually saying these words to Satan. And he is showing that he is fulfilling what Israel should have done in the wilderness in his 40 days and 40 nights. And... We could talk more in detail about how the three tests that Jesus undergoes near Israel's wilderness wanderings with great detail. As amazing as this is, like 
in Israel when you have the water that comes from rock or the bread that comes from heaven. And then, of course, Jesus is tempted by Satan to turn rocks into bread. That's not coincidental. Satan knows that there is recapitulation happening. Or God carrying Israel in the wilderness so that they wouldn't fall and break a bone. And there's terminology in Deuteronomy that talks about that very specifically. And then Jesus is tempted to go up on top of the temple, the house of God, and to literally jump off and not break a bone. Because God promised that he would not do so to Israel. Or God showing Moses all the promised land. You can see all of it on top of a mountain. And then Satan going and taking Jesus and taking him up on a mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the earth. There is a connection there. But that's the super long version of the sermon, and I don't have time for that tonight. We'll have to save that for another time. But what we need to talk about for sure are some implications from hopefully what we can pull out of this recapitulation example of Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights. What do we do with all that's been said so far? What do we get out of this? Let me give you three quick things that you can get out of this, and then we'll move on to our other points tonight, our other examples of recapitulation. First, although Jesus gives us an excellent example of battling temptation in the wilderness— And it is an excellent example. That's not the point of Matthew chapter 4. That's not the point of Matthew chapter 4. It's good that you want to apply that. And it's okay that you apply that. Keep battling your temptation. And use scripture like Jesus did. Deuteronomy. To fight that temptation. But be mindful of the fact that that is not the main point of Matthew chapter 4. It's not just to be a way that you battle your own temptations. Instead, we see that the context of Matthew's gospel has been building this accelerating theme that Jesus is Israel's true representative and is succeeding where they failed. We need to know that because he is our representative also, not just the representative of Israel. This is a passage that first and foremost should increase your faith in his ability to be what you couldn't be and to do what you couldn't do. That's number one. Number two, it should encourage you that God is committed to redeeming you. He's committed to redeeming you. And it required Jesus to walk where his people walked and doing not only what they did to show his relationship to represent them, but also doing what they couldn't do and going where they couldn't go. And third, it should show us that connecting one passage of Scripture to another passage in Scripture cannot be done carelessly, arbitrarily, or at the whim of the reader. Your goal as the reader must be to identify if God actually intended two passages of Scripture to go together, whether those are truly divinely orchestrated events that connect. And to do that, you must make appropriate author-intended connections, okay? This is where you avoid going off the rails here into something that's proving your own point in Scripture, You must make appropriate author-intended connections. And you're like, well, what are appropriate author-intended connections? Give me the details. It's really all about, as crazy as it is, and some of you may hate this, it's all about grammar. It's all about grammar. Unique words and terms, okay? Unique words and terms, or numerous words and terms that, appear in both passages that you're trying that you are seeking to connect or that should be already connected and that those terms mirror one another you see a a term here in one passage you see a term in another passage that might mean that those are tend to be connected but then you want to make sure that there are numerous ones or even unique ones that appear mostly in those passages but don't appear in other passages perhaps 
And what happens is the more connections that you're seeing, where you're seeing those things tied together, the more that that reinforces the connection between them and makes the union undeniable. It's not a coincidence that this, was, this is said, that this, this, this word is used numerous times in this passage and in this passage, and that's pretty unique to both of those passages. This matching of terms forces us to stay factually driven, and we don't just go subjectively here. And it also helps us to stay biblically centered. And it keeps us from foisting our meaning onto the text rather than deriving God's meaning from the text. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. It's in the text. You've got to get to the grammar of the text. Show me the terms that connect the passages together. The more you find, the more likely that they would be connected. The author intended them to be connected. That's the signal that authors use to connect passages together. They have a term that's used in another passage, and they're pulling in those terms, multiple terms from another passage, to tie you into that text. And make sure, also, to keep it chronological. This is hard, because we often sometimes want to do it backwards. For instance, the meaning of Moses' 40 days and 40 nights on Sinai is not that it simply foreshadows Jesus and his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Even though you can kind of say, yeah, there's kind of a foreshadowing going on there. Absolutely, that's true. But technically, that's backwards. The original audience was not thinking, oh, hey, I see that. That foreshadows Jesus. Like when they see Moses on Mount Sinai. Oh, yeah. They're not thinking that. No, go to the later event, which is Jesus' event, and then look back to the former from there. Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights is actually teaching us something. It's teaching us that he is a better Moses. He is a better Israel. That's the point of Jesus' story connected to Moses' story when we read it chronologically. When Matthew's original Jewish audience first read Jesus' story, they could immediately pick up on the fact that Jesus was doing things that Moses and Israel did because they already knew about Israel and Moses. It was chronological. For our part, we must make sure that Jesus doesn't become, and this is where we do backwards interpretation and backwards Bible hermeneutics, we can easily make Jesus a, a pious excuse to incorporate him into seemingly, uh, I can't understand this text, or a boring text, or something that seems irrelevant to me in the Old Testament, just to make those passages more interesting or applicable to self. It's easy to do that. It's easy to incorporate him into the Old Testament where perhaps he's not intended to be there. And as honorable, and I'm going, I know I'm going after probably something that might be dear to some of you, as honorable as it may sound to find Jesus in every verse of the Old Testament, that's actually not Jesus-centered Bible study. As weird as that may sound, if it was Jesus-centered Bible study, we would, sh- we would try, or we should try, to find out, actually, is that how Jesus would have understood his Old Testament first? We would want to try to understand his hermeneutic. Would he have done that? That honors him the most. That's Jesus-centered Bible study, when we operate with Jesus' hermeneutics. No, finding Jesus in every Old Testament verse is often done more as a facade, I would argue, of being Jesus-centered for sure, but is actually a means for us to make the Bible more relevant to me, which means it's me-centered Bible study. You're like, oh, I didn't want to hear that tonight. That's me-centered hermeneutics. That's me-centered Bible interpretation. And anytime we are me-centered with the Bible and we're not using God's logic and his rationale and his hermeneutics, we are not glorifying God. 
we need to understand his rationale and how he intended his Bible to be interpreted. That honors him the most. That's proper Bible interpretation, and that's modeled in the first point, the 40s. The 40s. And hopefully, it has acted as an instructive intro into what recapitulation is all about. I hope that's been helpful for you a little bit. Kind of seeing it worked out is probably the best way to see it. Instead of just me to kind of explain it in some theological concept, to kind of see it lived out in Matthew 2, Matthew 3, Matthew 4, Matthew 5. Now, with the time we have remaining, I know we don't have much time left, but we're going to talk about those two final examples, and these should go a lot quicker, because now you understand recapitulation, hopefully. The next one is the second ruler, the second ruler. I love this one. This is one of my favorites. Second ruler. Now, if you take this me-centered approach to the Bible study like we just talked about and read Jesus into every event in the Old Testament, you may actually miss the beauty of other recapitulations that are happening that are not necessarily related to Jesus. You might miss them. And there's no greater example of that than perhaps Joseph and Daniel. Joseph, Genesis, and Daniel in the book of Daniel. The parallels between these two individuals and their stories are, uh, it's shocking how many parallels there are, and definitely not a coincidence. I mean, if you think about it, Egypt, Egypt in Joseph's day is perhaps the most powerful nation at that time. And then Babylon in Daniel's day is also the most powerful nation at that time. It's kind of ruling the known world. Joseph is elevated to second ruler under Pharaoh. Daniel is promoted to second ruler under Nebuchadnezzar. Even a character appears in both stories that assists the two. It's funny. Potiphar, in Joseph's story, is the chief executioner for Egypt. And he takes a liking to Joseph, actually. It's actually surprising. Even when he gets put into prison, he's put in charge of the prison. Okay? There's something about that there. He doesn't fully, perhaps, some argument for the fact that he doesn't fully believe his wife, but he knows, for reputation's sake, he has to imprison Joseph. But he puts him in charge of the prison. Very interesting. There's another character in Daniel's story, not very well known, but in Daniel chapter 1 and 2, his name is Ariok. Ariok is the chief executioner for Babylon. Chief executioner, just like Potiphar. And he takes a liking to and helps Daniel to come meet the king. Both individuals interpret dreams. That doesn't occur in Scripture almost at all, except in these events. Both kings are unusually pleased with Joseph and Daniel almost divinely so, or really, we should say divinely so. Both are given much gold, it says, and possessions and power. Both are said to have the Spirit of God upon them, which surprisingly is not a term that you hear often in the Old Testament. But yet both are described with that attribute. So when you read Daniel's story, which is the later story, you should be thinking, this story pictures the story of Joseph. You should be thinking that, and for a reason, and we'll talk about that reason in a moment. Now, you can also argue that Mordecai's story in Esther mirrors Joseph and Daniel as well. That's actually true, Uh, but there's even a third, or really a fourth, I should say, if you include Mordecai's story. There's really a fourth story that happens in the Bible that connects to both of these as well, and this one's not as expected, okay? Get ready for this one. It is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It's very important to understand this. Just as Joseph and Daniel were second to their king, they got promoted to second to the king, John the Baptist also acts as second to the true king, the Messiah. Remember Herod's birthday, Matthew chapter 14? Kind of a strange story that kind of seems out of the blue. It's like, man, we're going into great detail about this birthday. What's going on here? Why is that passage even there? And what you should wonder is, hey, is there another birthday in Scripture that a king has? There is. There is. And this is like the only other time this occurs in Scripture, basically. Pharaoh has a birthday. 
in Genesis 40. And he beheads and hangs the baker. Remember this, right? And he saves the cupbearer. And that's what prompts Joseph's dream-telling incident to the king. So also in the story of John the Baptist, Herod has a birthday and is compared with Pharaoh by beheading someone on his birthday. Interesting. But here's the problem. He beheads the wrong guy. Unlike Pharaoh, Herod doesn't behead his baker or even his cupbearer. He beheads the forerunner to the Messiah. In other words, in his story, it's like he beheaded Joseph or Daniel in his story. He beheaded John the Baptist. Even the executioner of John is mentioned in his story, just like Potiphar and just like Arioch in Daniel's story. But the executioner in this, t- in this case with John the Baptist does not aid John. He does not help him like the others aided Joseph and Daniel. In other words, John the Baptist's beheading is a recapitulation of Joseph's event and a recapitulation of Daniel's event, but it's gone completely wrong. The message then, and it's, a, it's amazing how this fits so neatly in Matthew's story of Jesus, The message then is this. Israel's king, King Herod, he's a puppet king. Israel's King Herod is actually worse than Egypt's king and worse than Babylon's king. And this signals that the true king of Israel, Jesus, the true king must instead now suffer and die and his glory will have to be delayed for another time because clearly Israel is not ready for their king and for his kingdom. That's the logic of Matthew's message. There is going to have to be a delay because Herod is executing the wrong guy. Everything's mixed up and it's way worse than Joseph's story and it's way worse than Daniel's story. And that's the significance of John's event looking back at Daniel's event and Joseph's event. We need to see that in John's event and say, okay, that's pointing back to Daniel's event. And then Daniel's event is pointing back to Joseph's event. But what is the significance of Daniel's event when you look back at Joseph's event? I want to kind of look into that with you for just a moment. And it's much, much better than John's because obviously that's pretty sad in John's story. But in Daniel's story, this is much better. It pictures that Daniel is a new Joseph, isn't he? He's a new Joseph, and Israel can see Daniel, and they can see the parallels happening, and they're saying, that's exactly what happened in Joseph's story. And now we, as Israel, can trust God in our Babylonian exile, because just as he elevated Daniel to second in command with us, he did so with Joseph. In other words, the God who was with Israel in Egyptian exile is going to be with us in Babylonian exile. We can trust him. God had that planned. It's actually beautiful how God is communicating to us in his story, how he orchestrated history to precisely align Joseph's life with Daniel's life just to simply encourage his people to look back and remember he is faithful to preserve them. He will be faithful in their situation as well. He was faithful to Israel in Egypt. He will be faithful to Israel in Babylon. That's the second ruler. And there's one more. And it's called the boat in the storm. The boat in the storm. This is about the time when Jesus fell asleep in the boat in the middle of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You'll find that passage in uh, uh, several of the gospel accounts, but one that I often go to is Mark 4, verses 36 through 41. You see that uh, story communicated there. And now, certainly, Jesus was very tired in this event. And often you will hear comments like, hey, how could someone fall asleep in a storm? He must have been exhausted. And so then kind of the point of the story becomes like, exhaust yourself in ministry, right? And then, you know, that's, God honors that, you know? And man, he's just stays up late and he's healing people and he's just using all his strength. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Jesus modeled that throughout his entire life. 
But that's not why he mentions that he fell asleep. Because I'm sure there were many times in Jesus' life where he fell asleep out of exhaustion. I'm sure that that's true. Rather, there are so many details informing us that this event is picturing another event of someone who fell asleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. And some of you are like, I know it. I know which one you're talking about. It's Jonah, right? You know the story. You probably are thinking of the flannel graphs right now that you've had in Sunday school a long time ago. But you're like, okay, hold on. You're comparing Jonah with Jesus. How is that a recapitulation? <laughs> Unrighteous Jonah, righteous Jesus. <laughs> Why are you connecting those dots? Why is Scripture connecting those dots? But see, here's the point. Jonah fell asleep in a storm because he was so content, get this, outside of God's will. That's why he fell asleep, right? He is so content outside of God's will. He can fall asleep in the storm. He's even suicidal. Throw me off the boat. I want to die before I have to go to Nineveh. Kill me. I'm excited to die. I can't wait. He would rather die than fulfill the will of God. But Jesus fell asleep in the storm because he was so content in God's will. Wow. Jesus is then modeling to us a way better Jonah. That's the point of the story. Jonah was running away from ministering to the Gentiles in Nineveh. I don't want to give them the meshes of repentance because then they'll actually repent because I know that you're a gracious God and you actually do a mighty work. Jesus in his story is running to the Gentiles across the sea. He's heading to the other side of the Sea of Galilee where it's the land of the Gerasenes. That's Gentile land. That's not a coincidence. In Jonah's event, God whips up the storm and then God stops the storm, doesn't he? Remember that? In Jesus' story, Jesus stops the storm without even praying to God. So the story is begging us to connect these two events together. And arguably, the disciples on the boat were doing that. They may have, in the moment, been connecting the dots already. Hey, this sounds familiar. Jonah fell asleep in a boat in a storm, and then God stopped the storm. Oh my goodness, what's going on here? Jesus fell asleep. Oh wow. And he stopped the storm. The story begs us to ask the same question that the disciples asked. Who then is this? Who is this? Who is the God in Jesus' story? That's the big question. Clearly, Jesus is. That's what it's doing, and it's tying it back to Jonah to even push that point further. There is hardly a more definitive picture of Jesus' divinity in Scripture without actually explicitly mentioning it than this moment right here where it perfectly mirrors Jonah's story. So when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, and they want to argue with you about the grammar and syntax of Greek in John 1.1. 1, 1. You don't have to go there. They've already been taught their systematic way to explain it away, and it sounds really intelligent, even though they don't really know what they're talking about. And then when you really push them on the Greek, they're like, oh, I, oh, I didn't know you had a Greek Bible or whatever. No, you can take them to a story like this. Like Jesus in the storm. And show them how Jesus mirrors Yahweh God in Jonah's story. Even just that. Jesus stops the storm. The disciples get it. It's the punchline of the whole story. Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Like Yahweh did in Jonah's story. The answer is clearly he is Yahweh. He is clearly Yahweh. Jehovah's Witnesses don't have an answer for that one. Um, I know they don't because I just spoke to one several weeks ago about it. 
And in Jonah's story, the Gentiles on the boat believe in Yahweh. Remember that? In Jonah's story, the Gentile sailors, not believers, they actually begin to fear and serve Yahweh as a result. And in Jesus' story, the disciples begin to start believing in Jesus as God, that he is able to even stop the storm, showing that their faith is just as immature as Gentile seafarers, and they need just as much help as Gentiles. This is what recapitulation is all about. This is what it's all about. It's often twin stories, sometimes triplet or more, right? But twin stories intentionally tied together in the tapestry of the Bible where a human author communicates multiple connecting features to a previous story, but really, ultimately, they are historical events orchestrated by God that repeat themselves. That's recapitulation. Let me say that again, just in case you're trying to track with that. Often, Twin stories. These are twin stories intentionally tied together in the tapestry of the Bible where a human author communicates multiple connecting features in the story to a previous story. But really, ultimately, they are historical events orchestrated by God that repeat themselves. And in the spirit of Hebrews 11, time will fail me, as the writer of Hebrews says, to describe of such examples of recapitulation as this, and buckle your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on, Noah's Ark and the flood and Moses's, literally it says in the Hebrew, Ark, his Ark basket on the Nile River. Not a coincidence. Jesus at the well and Moses at the well and Jacob at the well and there are always women present. Not a coincidence. Moses in the burning bush and Joshua, the commander of the Lord. And he says to both, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. Not a coincidence. The battle of Ai in Joshua 8 and the battle of the Amalekites in Exodus 17, interconnected. Jesus, three days in the tomb and Jonah, three days in the fish, interconnected. Jesus, the vine in John 15, and Israel, the vine in the story in Isaiah chapter 5, intended to be connected. The miraculous languages of the early church when they were speaking in tongues, and the languages of Assyria and Babylon in Israel's exile. You're like, really? Yeah, they're actually intended to be a recapitulation of that event. Whoa. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The daughters of Lot and the daughters-in-law of Naomi. You're like, what? Really? Yes, because they're both related. They're related to each other by ancestry and their husbands were all killed. And then Ruth's story redeems the story of Lot. It's incredible. Elijah the prophet and John the Baptist the prophet. The two witnesses of Revelation and then Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there's a whole connection there. And in the spirit of Christmas coming soon, we also have the birth of Jesus connected to the birth of Samuel, which is connected to the birth of Samson, actually. Or how about Hannah's prayer and Mary's Magnificat? Those are connected. You read the prayers, they're very similar to one another. That's intentional. Or how about this? David, a shepherd, born in Bethlehem, right? And Jesus, born in Bethlehem, surrounded by shepherds. So it's not a coincidence. Now you understand why shepherds have to be there, because it's pointing you to the fact that this is now the true David has arrived. And on and on we could go. Recapitulation saturates the Bible from cover to cover. It is God's signature at the end of every story he authors. It is God's signature at the end of every story he authors. It's his way of saying, I did that. That's recapitulation. I did that. Only God could have done that. Who else could, have, could make history repeat itself with such precision except a god who is perfectly in control of everything so what should you have gained from this i hope well one confidence i hope and strengthen faith in the fact that 
the Bible is history. It's real. Two, God is in control of that history. Even down to the smallest details of events. So is he in control of your life? I hope you come away saying, yep, he is. Third, God orchestrates biblical history so that it reaches its peak, its zenith in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. That's so important. God orchestrates history so that it reaches its peak. Its climax is in Jesus the Messiah. Fourth, the God who was faithful previously is faithful today. The God who was faithful previously is faithful today. That's what we get from a lot of these recapitulation stories. God was faithful then. He is faithful now. And then fifth, consider the deeds of those in previous events and learn how to live rightly in today's events. Sometimes the recapitulation event is teaching Israel or teaching God's people that what was done previously maybe was not the right thing and they need to live in light of that uh, in a godly way. But one final question you might ask, and I've actually had this asked to me before, and it's a really good question. Can modern events be thought of and interpreted as recapitulation of biblical events? Can we take modern events like COVID and apply it to some, this must be a recapitulation, a repeating event of what was happening in the New Testament or in the Old Testament? Or can we say World War I or World War II is a recapitulation of what was going on in exile in Israel or so forth? No, you can't do that. You're like, oh man, I was hoping I could. Why not? Why can't I do that? Because, well, for starters, you would need biblical revelation to determine if the event that you're seeing is meant to be seen as recapitulation. You would actually need biblical revelation to help you to do that. And we don't have divine revelation making those connections for us. But even if you don't take that argument at face value, there's something even more important. This is critical. Now that Jesus has come, now that he has come, all repeating of events, all recapitulation has reached their peak. I just said this. It just, it's already reached its peak. It's zenith in the life and ministry of Jesus and the events that surround them. When Jesus came, it reached its climax. Anything else in our lives would just be a big downer. Oh, well, Jesus already kind of recapitulated everything. No event in our era will be able to repeat in the way of biblical recapitulation because Jesus' first coming brought recapitulation to its peak. That's how God designed it so that his son would be the grand finale of history. The only time in which events will repeat themselves yet again is when Jesus returns and he outdoes his first coming with his second coming. In other words, only Jesus can out-recapitulate himself. And there is no more recapitulation until then. And he will do so. He will out-recapitulate himself in the seven-year tribulation, in the day of the Lord, and in the coming kingdom but that is a story for another time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are the one who is in control of history. Thank you, O oh God, that you are sovereign and that you have stitched together. They're not just stories. These are real events real things that happened to real people in real places, places that archaeology keeps finding and digging up in the land of Israel. These people did exist on this planet at one point, and you did amazing things for them and with them. And their situations came to a climactic conclusion in your son who truly came to this earth, a real person. And his life 
has repeated many of the things in the past to connect the dots, that we would see those connections and that we would recognize that Jesus is bringing these things to their fullest conclusion and their fullest meaning, meaning that you, O Lord, are the grand finale of God's plan. Your signature is on every recapitulation event in history. And we only look forward to the time when Jesus will return and he will bring the climax of all climax to this earth. It will be a time of great terror for many. But I pray, O oh God, that you would work in the hearts of any here who are turned against you, that they would recognize you are not one to be trifled with. Your son will rule this earth. He will reign. And Lord God, history is in your hands. It's not left up for grabs. It's a very self-focused perspective of history. History is yours. It's your plan. Help us to find where we fit into that. Not where history fits into our lives, not where the Bible fits into our lives, but where we fit into your plan and into your word so that we may live exactly how we're called to live. We pray this in Jesus' name.